After Jesus rose from the dead, he took a journey, a short walk to a village near Jerusalem. He encountered two travelers on that road who were perplexed, distraught because their hopes were dashed, the expectations were unmet, fears were growing in their heart. They were confused because the man upon whom they had pinned their hopes had died. And some women came and told the followers of that man, Jesus, that he was in fact alive again. And as these two travelers made their way home to their village in Emmaus, Jesus came and walked alongside them. But he was hidden from their sight. They didn't recognize that it was, in fact, Jesus. And they got into a conversation in which Jesus began to pick on these men a little bit, asking them, why are you so foolish and slow to understand all that the scriptures have said concerning the Christ, that he must suffer, that he must die, and that he must be raised from the dead on the third day? In whatever time was remaining on that short trip to Emmaus, Jesus opened their eyes so that they could see the Christ in the scriptures. I hope by now you see that what Zach and I are trying to do in this series is imitate the Lord Jesus. With all of our limitations and weaknesses, we hope and pray that the scriptures are opened and that you see Christ in all of the scriptures. And today is no different. As we enter into the book of Exodus, we're hoping and praying that we will see Christ again and again in all of these stories, even the familiar stories that we feel that we know so well. Last week, we heard a story of Joseph and how the book of Genesis ended with Joseph speaking to his brothers And telling them twice that God will surely visit us and take us back to the land he promised to us. Joseph said that because years and years prior, God had told Abraham that your people, your descendants will be in a foreign land, not their own, for 400 years. And they will be afflicted and I will surely visit judgment upon those people who afflict you. Well, by this time, centuries have passed. And by the time we open the book of Exodus, we are coming to the end of those 400 years. God is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. And as he has promised to always be with his people, to never leave them or forsake them, so he is with his people now. And during all of this time, the people of God have done their part as much as they were able to keep the covenant and to circumcise their sons. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been fruitful, and they have multiplied in their time in Egypt. When they went down to Egypt, they were 70 souls, but now they are some two and a half million souls. They have increased And multiplied so that they are now more like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore than ever before. And while they might have been happy with this exponential growth, the Egyptians were not happy. In fact, the Egyptians were disturbed by this growth and they felt dread 
and despised the Hebrews because of their growth. And so they decided to press the Hebrews into hard labor and to give them all the dirty jobs and to treat them as slaves. The word Hebrew, some scholars tell us, means the dusty ones, the dusty people, the dirty ones, because they spent so much time in the wilderness, but also because they have become the construction workers and the city builders of Egypt. And through it all, God was there with his people. He was there, and while he might have seemed to be silent, he suffered with his people. He saw their affliction, he heard their cries, he felt their pain, and he drew near to help them. And I want you to see that God still does these kinds of things. He does these things for you. He sees where you are, he hears your cries, he feels your pain. And he draws near to help you. And he does it for you for the same reason he did it for Israel. Because he loves you. And he loves you not with a sentimental love, but he he loves you with a love that shows real affection and takes real action in your life. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And as he has promised to raise up a savior that would crush the the head of of the serpent... So he has raised up a savior in Egypt to deliver his people out of slavery. This servant's name is Moses. He was given an Egyptian name because an Egyptian woman, the daughter of Pharaoh, found him floating in a river in a little ark. And she pulled him out of the river and gave him the name Moses, which means drawn out of the water. It was in God's providence that Moses was raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's palace and that he was educated in the language and the customs of Egypt. But it was also in God's providence that he was nursed and catechized by none other than his very own mother, his own flesh and blood. And so Moses spent the first 40 years of his life living in two worlds, living as a cross-cultural citizen alien. And along the way, something in him changed. Instead of straddling the line, instead of sitting on the fence, something in him changed. And he decided that he needed to go the way of the Hebrew, not the way of the Egyptian. The scripture tells us that by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a prince of Egypt, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin in Egypt. And the rationale for this is given by the Spirit who says he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking for the reward, the reward that God had promised his people. Now, even though Moses felt in himself that he was ready to lead the people out of slavery, even though he thought that he was the deliverer and the savior that God had sent to the Hebrews, they were not ready to follow him. And so he was despised and rejected by his own people. He fled to the wilderness and lived in exile for 40 years, perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of shame perhaps out of regret or remorse. But he spent 40 years in the wilderness. 
And it was in this next phase of life, in this 40-year period of life, that he unlearned many of the things that he had learned in Egypt. And he began to learn and relearn many of the things that he needed to know as a Hebrew. He learned what it was like to be a Hebrew. He learned what it meant to become a husband and a father, a steward. He learned what it meant to be a shepherd. He learned what it meant to worship God and to pray He learned what it meant to serve as a priest. He learned what it meant to become gentle and lowly and not high and mighty. He learned the patience of God. He learned to wait on the Lord. This past week, we hosted a gathering of local pastors here at RPC. It was a prayer breakfast And in this multi-denominational gathering, we had a chance to meet a variety of new faces, new people that had not come here before. And one of the men who was there was a man who told us that he has served in ministry for 65 years. And we all stood in awe of him and marveled at the fact that he had served faithfully for 65 years. And with a twinkle in his eye, he looked around the room and said, I think I'm just now getting the hang of it. Moses learned by experience that haste makes waste and that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. So a little side note here, something for us to chew on, especially for those of you who are impulsive and impatient God takes his time. God is patient. And why does God take his time? Well, God takes his time because God is love. And love is patient. And love is kind. Love is not rude. Love is not pushy. And this is important for us to remember. Parents, as we look upon our children, God takes his time with our children And children, it's important for you to know this about your parents. God takes his time with your parents. God takes his time with us because he loves us. And he wants to do what is right and good for us. Now with that in mind, we meet Moses again, going about his life, tending his flocks, business as usual, just another ordinary day. But it was on this day that the Lord caught his eye and his ear and captured his heart. Why? Because Moses saw something he had never seen before. He saw a bush engulfed in fire, and yet it was not consumed. And so he turned aside from what he was doing to check out this mysterious sight. And as he drew near for a closer look to examine this strange sight, suddenly The unthinkable, the unimaginable happened. The fiery bush began to speak to him. Moses, Moses. And the bush knew his name. So imagine Moses being shaken to the core, not only at the strange sight, but now the sound of the angelic voice speaking to him out of this fiery bush. And what does that voice say? The voice says to him, you need to keep a safe distance. I want you to come close, but on my terms. Take off your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. 
Now that might mean a lot of things, but one thing I want to highlight to you is what it means is God is saying to Moses, Moses, I know you. Moses, I love you. Moses, I want you to be with me where I am. I want you to experience all that I have for you. And I don't want anything man-made to come between us. Take off your sandals. Stand on holy ground. Get a little taste of the glory. You were dust, but you're destined for glory. You're a man made in my image and likeness. I love you, Moses. And we know that's in the backdrop of this because God has heard the cry of his people. He's seen their affliction. And undoubtedly, he has seen Moses' affliction. He's seen his experience in the wilderness. He knows what he's been up to for 40 years. But now his spiritual formation is complete. And after 80 years of fits and starts, and after 80 years of growing and changing, now he is ready to serve the purposes of God in his generation. He's equipped for every good work as a man of God ought to be. But he doesn't necessarily feel that way in and of himself. So he's going to take some prodding and some convincing. And that's what the Lord does for him. Last week, I came across an interesting conversation between Joe Rogan and Matthew McConaughey. It was a conversation that took place just a couple of years ago. They were discussing Matthew McConaughey's religion and some of the challenges he faces in Hollywood because of his faith. One thing that caught my attention was when McConaughey said that he lives in a world in which people love to say that they are spiritual but not religious. And he was pushing back against that by saying, I'm not spiritual, I am religious. And he said, if you understand religion, you ought to be religious too, because religion is about binding things, pulling things back together again. I was like, oh, this is interesting. He's a theologian and an actor. And then he went on to talk about his appreciation for the Bible, especially the bits and pieces of the Bible that have practical value, the uh, bits of wisdom that you find in the book of Proverbs, where he could put those things into practice and see the result or the effect of that in his own life. And he, he appreciated that. But then he went on to say that he confessed that he didn't quite know what to do with some other parts of the Bible, like the burning bush and other magical stories. And so as he put it, a man being religious but not spiritual, it turns out that his religion was natural and not supernatural, just like the Sadducees that you find in the New Testament. Just like many Americans that we find who believe that the Bible and life in the universe is disenchanted, no longer magical. It's all been demythologized and we have natural explanations for everything. And then we come across a story like the story of Moses at the burning bush. And people say, I don't quite know what to do with this magic story. But what this story does is it pushes back against all of that sort of naturalism and humanism. And it requires us to see that the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them infused the world with mystery and with magic. And he gave it all meaning. As the Catholic poet Gerard Manley Hopkins put it, 
The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Well, perhaps like Moses, we need to be reminded that the world is charged with the grandeur of God and that God is not far away but nearby. That God is not aloof or apathetic to us but alive and active in our world and in our life. While not everyone knows what to do with magical stories like the burning bush, we're invited by God to draw near, to turn aside with Moses and to see this great sign and to find out what it all means. Now, there are a variety of views on this. The Jewish rabbis tended to say that it represents Israel in Egypt who were beat down and yet not burned up. Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church teachers say that it represents the Virgin Mary when she conceived and carried the God-man in her womb and yet was not consumed. The French Huguenots and the Scottish Presbyterians in the time of the Reformation said it represented the Protestant Church, a symbol of grace under fire because they were being persecuted so fiercely. And I would say perhaps there is some truth in all of those views, but what I want to highlight for you here is the way Moses perceived it and the way Moses responded to it. When Moses saw the sight and heard the voice, he hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. In the story of the Bible, fire often represents God's presence among his people. We can see this in the story of God descending on Mount Sinai in the billows of smoke and the flashes of lightning and the fire that was on the mountain. We can see it in the story of Pentecost when the fire of the Holy Spirit rested on the apostles and was poured out upon all the church. And by faith we can even see it in the story of Christ crucified. Among other things, Moses saw... The cross in flames. Christ crucified for the sins of the world. After all, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he was engulfed in the fire of judgment because of our sins. And yet he was not consumed. And like one from whom men hide their faces. So Moses covered his face in holy fear. Now, in the imaginations of our hearts, I'm sure that all of us would have loved to have experienced the things that Moses experienced. We probably think that would have been so cool to see that bush on fire and not burned up and to have an angel speak to us out of there. It would have been awesome. And it would have been. But I think the fact that we feel that way and feel jealous about Moses goes to show just how unmagical and disenchanted our view of things really is. You see, Moses saw a sign of God's presence in the burning bush for a moment. But you get to see the reality of that sign in your life every day for a lifetime. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Where is it? I don't see it. Where is this fire that you speak of? And let me show you. When Jesus came into the world, he promised to baptize his people with the Spirit and with fire. He told stories that opened eyes and made hearts burn. He walked with travelers whose hearts burned within them when they saw Christ opened in the scriptures. Don't your hearts burn within you when you encounter Christ in his word and at his table? The light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shines in you, body and soul. The fire of the Spirit burns in your heart, and yet you are not consumed. And not only are you not consumed, but you are changed. You are conformed to the image of life and consecrated to God. As the father told his son in the post-apocalyptic novel, The Road, you have to carry the fire. It's inside you. Can't you see it? You have to carry the fire. And that fire is not just some warm, fuzzy feeling. That fire is the gift of the Spirit, of God's presence and power in your life. It's inside you. And this is why the apostles say, don't quench the Spirit's fire. Fan it into flame. Let it burn and you will be consecrated to the Lord your God and yet not consumed by him. Well, now that God has our attention and our hearts are ablaze with his presence, he goes one step further and he begins to fan into flame his love and compassion in us with these words. Words that Moses needed to hear, words that you need to hear as well. Imagine Moses, 40 years of his life, wandering around, asking, is this what I was made for? Is this what I was called to do? I thought I was supposed to rescue my people. What am I doing out here with these sheep? And God comes to him and says, I have seen your affliction. I've heard your cries. I know your sufferings. I'm coming to pick a fight with things that trouble you and to pull you close to my heart. I've come to lift you up out of despair and death and to lead you to life To bring you all the way home to the new garden of Eden, the paradise of God, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I will always be with you. Moses didn't just need an experience. He needed to hear the gospel. And he heard the gospel of God's love in these words. That God is aware of what's happening with his people and he doesn't stand by and let it happen, but he comes near to engage the world. You need to hear that as well. Of course, I don't know every one of you as well as I would like, but I know enough of you to know that many of you have been afflicted with varieties of sorrows. That death has knocked on your door, that sickness has weakened you, that sin will not let you go. I know that you have troubles in your families. I know that parents and kids are at each other 
all the time. I know that parents are worried about their kids drifting away, leaving the faith, going crazy. I also know that kids think their parents have gone crazy and won't leave them alone and let them grow up. Life is very messy. It's hard and strange. And what we need to hear in the midst of those dark times, in the midst of those dusty days, is we need to hear the gospel again and again. The gospel that says from God's mouth to your ears, I love you. I care about you. And I'm doing something about your situation. That God is doing better things for you than you can ask or imagine for yourself. This is the gospel that God gave to Moses. Now God, of course, fulfilled these promises on a smaller scale in the exodus of Moses' generation. God did, in fact, come down and deliver his people and bring them to the land. But God is fulfilling these promises on a much larger and cosmic scale in the true and better exodus of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this when he came down for us in the incarnation. We see it when he came to pick a fight with our enemies in the crucifixion. We see it when he came to lift us up in the resurrection. And we see it when he leads us all the way home in his ascension. We see and feel what Moses saw and heard when we see that God is present with us by his spirit. The spirit who lives and moves and breathes among us. It is a spirit who has brought us life and peace and hope. Now, in response to all these mysterious and magical things, Moses said, perhaps what none of us would have said, who are you? What is your name? And God gave what I consider to be the most cryptic answer that you find in the Bible. It's an answer that has perplexed everyone from Moses on. God simply said, I am who I am. I grew up with Saturday morning cartoons, and where I first learned that phrase was with Popeye the Sailor Man, who said, I am what I am, and that's all that I am. I am who I am, Moses. My name cannot be contained by one word. It can be characterized. My name cannot be defined by... One word, it can only be described. I am who I am, Moses. And Moses says, I don't know if that's going to work when I go back to my people and try to explain this to them. And so God says to him in verse 15, I'll tell you who I am. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In other words, this is my forever name, my eternal name. This is the way God revealed himself to Moses and Israel. He did not reveal himself in this way to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. This is new revelation. Moses learned something about God that people before him did not know. This is the name that God proclaimed to Moses to show him his glory while Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock on the mountain. 
As the Lord God passed by and proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the name that Jesus revealed to his apostles when he prayed on the night he was betrayed. Father, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In other words, Jesus says, I revealed your name to them, and your name is love. This is the name into which you were baptized. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is none other than the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is God's eternal name, and he wrote it on you when you were baptized. He gave you the grace and the glory of his name to bear on your body and soul, to shape your identity and your life. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You belong to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And what are we to do with this name? And what are we to make of this name that God gave us? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Make it count. Wear it with the pride and the dignity that it deserves. Bear his name with reverence and awe in your life. And do it for the glory of God and for the life of the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.